Have you ever felt that some Bible studies are too much? You know, they're too long, they're too deep, they're too serious, they're too theological, and yeah, maybe they're too boring. <laughs> well, we're going to try to remedy that with this podcast, the Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. We're going to take a close look at Scripture. We're going to look at the cellular base of what God was saying through His Word. But we're not going to make it too much of anything. We're going to try to make it just right for everything. In John's account of what happened at the empty tomb on resurrection morning, on that first Easter morning, more so than any of the other gospel writers, he spends a lot of time telling us about Mary Magdalene's experience that morning. And one of the things that he wants us to know is that she was very, very upset. She was crying because she came to the tomb and found it empty. Initially, instead of rejoicing at the empty tomb, she was terribly upset at finding that Jesus was not there. But she, because she came with the wrong expectation. She came with the expectation of finding a dead Jesus, not a risen Lord. That's what we're going to talk about in this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. So I wanted to do a little uh, uh, housekeeping from last week. Uh, those of you who were here, and I wish Greg was here. He's not here today. Uh, but as you remember, we had a little conversation about the burial cloth that was over Jesus' head, uh, you know, um, when he was buried. And um, because John in this is he has a lot of emphasis on the burial cloths, on the strips of linen, in which he says the strips of linen that were on his Jesus' body at his burial, but also the burial cloth where he's talking about the the head the head cloth that was put around his head, and um, I had made the statement that you know that cloth would have been bloody and dirty and um, you know. Uh, it says that Jesus, fold, that 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 burial cloth that was around his head was folded, uh, and we went back and looked at the original Greek, which meant uh, either twisted or rolled. And we talked about how Jesus would have taken that, particularly that that particular piece, and taken a special care of that to roll that and to put it aside. Like there was something especially special about that uh, barrel cloth. And I had said that, you know, it was probably bloody and had been bloody because of the crown of thorns around his head. And um, that that particular piece would have been special because it had Jesus' blood on it. And he knew that 
you know, while most people would go in and say, this is a bloody rag, throw it away, uh, he knew that this was the blood of salvation, and so he treated that piece particularly carefully. But then Dr. Gregg, who uh, knows a lot more about that than I do, certainly, said that probably didn't really happen that way because uh, they would have washed Jesus' uh, body because it says that they, when they buried Jesus, they took care of all the regular Jewish customs of burial, and that would have included, and it would have included washing his body. And you don't bleed after you die, and so that cloth would have been clean without any blood on it. Well, I said I got to do some research about that because I'm, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm sure he knows from a medical standpoint physically, but I'm not sure that, you know, that is exactly what happened. So it was hard for me to find anything actually on this. There's not a lot of uh, material about was the burial cloth on Jesus bloody or not. Uh, <laughs> but what I found was that actually we could both be right, as it turns out. Um, so, uh, and I'll read this to you here in a minute, but basically we can both be right because, yes, Jesus' body would have been washed before they put the strips of linen around his body. Uh, so those strips of linen around his body could have been clean without blood and probably were because they would have washed that blood off of him and the strips of linen they put on his body there would have been clean and so they would have been without blood. However, the piece around his head is different. And we talked about that in the original Greek that that burial cloth, which is translated as cloth, uh, really means in the original Greek a handkerchief or a napkin, and that it wasn't only used for burial purposes. It was just a common piece of cloth that was used primarily for like wiping off sweat as uh, during the day, during the heat of the day. And I said, you know, how I use mine, I used to use all the time at Mount at, at Walnut Hills because we had no air conditioning. I always had something with me to wipe the sweat off of, of myself. And so that was the same way this particular piece of cloth was used primarily for most people just as a way to wipe off your sweat from day to day, but it was also used in burial purposes. So I found this online. I thought, oh, this is interesting because actually that particular piece that was around his head, while the rest of his body had been washed and clean, that particular piece of cloth could have been could have had blood on it, could have been bloody. And here's why. It says, John the Evangelist mentions a sudarium as the cloth that had covered Jesus' head in John 20, verse 7. Rolled up and set apart from the shroud in the tomb. I don't think it was a shroud. I think it was strips of cloth, but whatever. That's a minor point. This Latin term comes from sudor, meaning sweat. In the gospel account, the term appears in the Greek text as a Latin loan word, sudarian. The word refers to a small, multi-purpose cloth that was tied to the arm as a towel to wipe sweat from the face, also serving as a scarf, apron, or turban. In the case of severe trauma, when blood flowed at the time of death, Jewish law, who knew this? I mean, you'd have to be Jewish to know this. Jewish law mandated use of a sudarium to retrieve the victim's blood. Since blood was viewed as the seat of life, it was unthinkable to move a disfigured corpse without covering it 
and it was imperative not to lose the blood because it was such it was just as much a part of the body as the flesh burial of the blood was required even to the extent of digging up blood-soaked earth and interring blood-stained clothes and linens so it is possible that you know joseph and uh and nicodemus could have used this napkin this cloth this sweat cloth this burial cloth for the purpose it was intended which was to wipe off the blood off of the body and then they could have treated it with aloe and so forth and put it on jesus head because they buried then jesus blood with his body which is part of the jewish burial custom who knew it goes on to say this is interesting i never heard this before but for what it's worth it says some believe that the cloth remained in place for up to one hour while Jesus' dead body was still on the cross. That's new to me. And for another hour after the body had been placed horizontally on the ground for the first burial anointing. At that time, the linen was rewrapped and knotted at the top, as documented in a 5th century paraphrase of John's Gospel. When the cloth was later set apart in the tomb for burial, this knot would have given it the twisted or rolled-up appearance described by John. So, uh, yeah, so Dr. Greg and I could both be right about this, um, or we could both be wrong. But uh, <laughs> I think that lends to me uh, what I would see as the reason that Jesus would have treated this particular cloth around his head in a special, different way than the rest of the cloth, the rest of the strips of linen that were left behind after he resurrected. So I like this idea because it fits it fits as far as as far as I'm concerned. It really fits. It's what I what, what I feel in my heart. So, okay. So we are now back in uh, chapter 20 of John, and we're now looking at what John does in that he gives us a very much more detailed account of what was happening happening with Mary Magdalene at the tomb. So uh, again, we've said this before. But I think this is just because John, he just liked Mary Magdalene. He saw something special in her. He had a kindred spirit with her. You know, we call John the disciple of love. He's always talking about this this disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, which he felt a special love from Christ, which was probably just uh, a reflection of his own special love for Jesus. And I think he saw something similar in the way that Jesus loved Mary Magdalene and Mary Magdalene loved Jesus. And so he wants to bring, as Mark, it was important for him to to mention Peter in the resurrection story. So it was important for John to say, hey, this is what happened in Mary Magdalene's experience at the tomb. So let's look at uh, John 20. We're going to start, start with verse 10. And John starts off basically finishing up his story, which we talked about last week, the story of him and Peter at the tomb that morning. So it says that, you know, then the disciples, meaning uh, Peter and John, went back to their homes. So uh, remember what happened is that uh, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb with the other women. Uh, She saw the stone rolled away. She probably went inside the tomb, saw that Jesus' body was not there. And in Luke, we have this little pause that I think is so important that he gives it to us. There's a little pause that says, and Luke says, and they were perplexed. They wondered what was going on. And I think in that moment, Mary Magdalene said, I got to go back and tell 
Peter and John what is going on here. I've got to tell the disciples what's going on here. Whereas the other women stayed behind in the tomb. So Mary goes back, and when she gets back to see Peter and John, she goes, we saw in John here in his, in his account, she says, they've taken his body, I, we don't know what they've done with it. And that's her, that's her testimony. The other women stay behind in the tomb, and while they're staying behind and tarry behind, the angel appears to them and tells them that he's risen, he's alive, go back and tell the disciples. On their way back to tell Jesus, Jesus himself appears to them. And then when they get back, they say, hey, the, uh, the, the angel said this, Jesus said this, boom, boom, boom. And Peter and John now, hearing from Mary that he's gone, someone's moved him, and then hearing from the other women, who they really don't believe, <laughs> say, he's risen. They say, we're going to go find out for ourselves. And so Peter and John go run to the tomb, and they have their experience there, which we talked about last week, which is the first part of John's account. And then they leave and go home. Well, they leave and go home, and after they leave and go home, Mary herself says, I got to go find out too, because that was not, did, did this really happen? What these other women saw? I, she was also confused. And so she goes back to the tomb for a second time. And by the time she gets there, because she's walking, maybe not running or more slow getting there. By the time she gets there, Peter and John basically have already left and gone home. So that's what John was his note. Then the disciples, Peter and John, went back to their homes. But Mary, but then Mary gets there. And so this is where her story begins. This is her second time at the tomb that morning. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Why was Mary crying? Why was Mary crying? Because what do you think? Jesus was gone. The body was gone? The whole, the whole thing. You know, the promises and nothing at the moment. I mean, so much to yeah. be crying about. She, you know, there were things that she had not experienced yet at this point when she gets back to the tomb. She had not seen an angel. She had not seen Jesus. Uh, and I think she was confused. If you look at verse 2 of 20, it says, So she came running to Simon Peter when she got back the first time, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, John, of course, she says, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So she's confused, isn't she? She's conflicted. Uh, she wants to believe that what the women said is true. She wants to believe that they saw an angel. They want to, she wants to believe that they saw Jesus. Uh, she wants to believe that he's risen, and yet she has not had that experience yet. So we, we talk a lot about doubting Thomas, and I think it's so unfair, because we certainly have doubting Peter, because as far as we know, from the moment Peter went back to his house, he still wasn't, he has seen everything and heard everything, and while John saw and believed, Peter saw and went home confused. So we have doubting Peter, but he doesn't get the uh, bad rap that Doubting Thomas gets. And now we have Doubting Mary Magdalene. Because she gets there and she's just confused. She goes, you know, two and two, two and two to her weren't making four. She has one, she has the empty tomb. Two, she has the stone rolled back. That's two. And then she has uh, the story of an angel appearing and with an announcement, and the story of Jesus, that's two. So empty tomb plus 
Stone Road back, plus story of an angel, plus story of Jesus, for her does not equal resurrection yet. And so she's confused, and what what to her, what two and two equals is not resurrection of Jesus. What for her, two plus two equals someone has taken him. Someone has taken him. So she gets there, and uh, let's see then what happens after that. Uh, oh, by the way, I want to say this too. When it talks about, well, well I'll, just, I'll just skip ahead just a little bit. But down here we have the angel saying, why are you weeping? And we have Jesus saying, why are you weeping? And the word, Greek word that's used there for the weeping that Mary was doing was not a quiet, reserved, kind of polite sobbing. It is wailing. It is lamenting. It is loud. So Mary was bawling, is what basically we would say is a loud, deep, you know, deep-seated crying and wailing that anyone in the area heard her. <laughs> so that, that's, the, that's the picture you have of her. So it says, then in verse uh, 11 again, as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. Now, she's already been in the tomb earlier, but she's come back, and but, but what she's heard now changes her possibility of options, let's just say. And so when she gets to the tomb the second time, even though she's already been in there once, she bends over and looks in again to say, okay, I think she's saying, okay, where are the angels, right? Okay, I'm looking in here. I, I want to see these angels for myself. And guess what? What did she see? And two angels were in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. So she sees two angels, right? And they're dressed in white, and this white is this dazzling brightness that we've talked about before. This isn't just white. This is like dazzling. This is this is this kind of you know, whiter than white kind of thing. And they were so so that, there's I mean, for you and I, I mean, for I think most people who would look in and we would see these two that, uh, yep, they're angels. They're angels. Uh, but it says in verse 13, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Why are you bawling? Why? And she just goes in, well, they're taking my Lord away, she says, and I don't know where they put him. I mean... Do you get the feeling here that Mary is not properly overwhelmed? <laughs> Do you get the feeling that she doesn't, she hasn't, is not as impressed as she should be by seeing angels? Because most people, when they see angels, what they they fall on their face, they say, "Forgive me," they say, "I'm a sinner," they're afraid. And yet, I get none of that. It's just like she's like, oh, as a matter of fact, like. Well, they're taking my Lord. What, Mary? What is going on? Those are the exact same words she says at the beginning. Yeah, there's one subtle difference though, which is interesting. That if you if you look, compare verse two to verse uh, was it thir uh, thirteen, and there's a subtle difference between those two. Well, yes, but in in verse two she says, 
they have taken uh, the Lord, and in verse 13 she says they've taken my Lord. Well, that's my question. That was a question I'm getting to, Grady. You anticipated me. That's thank you. Is did she know they were angel? I mean, well, right. And so that's my next question. If she if she didn't recognize them as angel, why not? Her grief. She was so. She had too much. She had. I don't know what the feeling. You don't know how she said in verse thirteen because they have taken away my Lord. You know, I mean, she could have been just. She's bawling. She's wailing. Her eyes are full of tears. She's grieving. She's with the angels. You know, they've taken away my Lord. I don't know where they put him. I can't even know. That was the only thing that was important. She had a one track mind at that point, right? Good point. She might have been on her knees. She, we don't know her position, but. It's interesting, though, if you go to verse 14, she sees Jesus and she thinks it's the gardener. So if she doesn't recognize Jesus as Jesus, then did she recognize the angels as angels? And I'm saying, well, if she didn't recognize Jesus, maybe she didn't really realize these were angels. I don't know, but I think it goes to her mental state. I think it just goes to her mental state that she's so upset She's so in so much grief. She's not thinking straight, is she? Have you ever felt that kind of grief before where you just aren't thinking straight? I think we've all had times. I think we can all, at our age, as we can all appreciate of being in a certain state of grief where you just can't think straight. And you have to be careful not to make bad decisions in that in that moment. But I think that's where we find Mary here, is that she, um, I don't know that she really recognized them as angels. Um, and also, I want to ask, how do you think the angels pose that question to her? They say in verse 13, they asked her, now how, how, did, they, how did they phrase this? Was it, woman, why are you crying? Like that, like sympathetically? Woman, why are you crying? Or was it something like this? Woman, why are you crying? Was it more accusatory, like, woman, why and why, why are you crying? You heard testimony that he's risen. You heard this. He's alive. You've heard a firsthand witness that they saw Jesus and that you come here late to the party. And you're weeping. Why are you crying? You should be rejoicing. You should be excited. You should be happy. And you come here looking for the dead among the living. Why in the world are you crying? You ever thought about that? That maybe they could have. And so at that point, she's now not only confused in grief and and, and upset, but now she's defensive. <laughs> Now she's also defensive. Okay, you guys want to think angels would never do that. I hear you. I hear your thoughts. The angels would never do that. So, okay, but it does give another possible interpretation of maybe what's going on there. So, um, but I do want to get back to a minute about uh, where she says they have taken the Lord versus they've taken my Lord. And 
is that a meaningful thing? Why would she have changed the way she phrased that? Was it just just subconsciously another or was Well, if they confronted her on why are you weeping, then she would say, It's my Lord. Uh-huh. I mean, it makes it more emphatic. So if she doesn't recognize them as angels, they can just be two strange men she doesn't know. They could be anybody. They may not even be believers in Christ for all she knows. And so she's saying to these people who may or may not be believers, who she doesn't recognize, who she doesn't know, they've taken my Lord. In verse 2, she's talking to Peter and John, who are already believers. So to them, to the in-group, she says, they've taken the Lord, meaning my Lord, your Lord, our Lord, the Lord. She doesn't need to say my Lord to them because they know that he's her Lord and they know that he's their Lord. And so there's no need to say my Lord, the Lord for all of us who are in the in crowd. But she gets to the tomb. There's these two strange men there who she may or may not recognize as angels. And she says to them very clearly, I don't know if he's your Lord, but he's my Lord. And I think the same thing will happen with us. You know, if we come into church and we talk to each other, we have a certain kind of language we use. Hey, the Lord, uh, you know, Jesus, uh, Savior, so on and so forth. We go out into the world and we are saying things to unbelievers or people we don't know if they're believers or not. Then we might say, my Lord, my, my Christ, my Savior. So it's the same kind of thing here, I think, is a subtle difference, but kind of an interesting difference. I think it depends on who your audience is. And that was the case. Yeah, Chuck? I'm just looking at a footnote here about this Charles Stanley principle Gladys. Yeah. The, about the tomb. Yeah. He said, well, Mary didn't realize that what she was seeing was fulfillment of Old Testament mercy seat. The glory of the Lord shone between these two angels. Only God's Shekinah glory was not being revealed to a priest with an offering. It was being shown to a woman with a broken heart. The forgiveness, guidance, and presence of God which had previously been acceptable only to one man on one day of the year, Leviticus 16, is now available to all of us for all eternity. Well, that's interesting because on the mercy seat, on the Ark of the Covenant, there's an angel on either side of that that was built into the Ark. And in between there is the mercy seat where the presence of God was. So I love that. That's a great uh, analogy that here they are, where Jesus was put, his, his body was put, an angel on either side of that, similar to giving us the reference of what was on the mercy seat on the ark, and in, uh, in between them was the place where Jesus had been, where God had been, but now he's, as a resurrected Lord, available to all of us, no longer just confined to the mercy seat or this place, but now resurrected for all of us to have in our own hearts. That's a great, a great, a great thing. And also, you know, another thing was we always read in the Bible that it takes how many witnesses? It takes two witnesses to proclaim. So here are angels who are messengers from God, and there are two of them, two witnesses to what has taken place there. So although only one of them is the spokesperson, but there are two, and this isn't the first time we've seen two angels, and that was purposely done because it takes two witnesses to witness to something that has happened. And so this was following exactly the law as it was given to us. Okay, so Mary, why are you crying? So let's go on then 
And uh, we're going to say that the angels were nice and they were kind. And uh, so all that's good. And uh, so, but, but her answer is, they've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. So then we go on in verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. So it's interesting. At, so at this, she turned around. So what made her turn around? Do you think? Maybe felt someone standing there. Sometimes you do that, you kind of feel like someone's looking at me. Someone's watching me. Maybe she heard some footsteps and turned around. Or maybe she's looking at the angels, right? Aha. So have you ever been like talking to someone and then they look, you can tell they're looking at you, but then all of a sudden they look past you and you're like, you know, who's something? So is it possible that the angels seeing Jesus did something that made her turn around? In other words, did the angels bow down? Did the angels look past her to him? Was there some body language or look from the angels that made her know that someone's behind? The angels, you know, when Jesus comes to into the, you know, hey, the boss is in the room, right? <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe they didn't bow down. Maybe they just looked past her and saw him. Or maybe their dazzling white became more dazzling. I don't know. But, okay. Something, for some reason, she turned around. She saw Jesus standing there, but she did not uh, recognize. She did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? So this is the same question that the angels have put to her. So this is now the second time she's been asked this question. The angels asked it, and she says, they've taken my Lord away, right? And then Jesus asked it, and he goes on to say, who is it you're looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him. So basically, again, she says, to the angel, she said, they, someone, we don't know who they are, whoever she thinks they are, they have taken my Lord away. And now she sees this man, she thinks the gardener, thinks this is the gardener, she goes, did you take him away? And it's interesting, like Doris said, this one-track mind that Mary had at this point, the only thing that was important to her was finding the body of Jesus, which says a couple of things. One, it says, did she think he was alive at this point? No. It's a woman. You know, it's... The apostles were following him and heard his teachings. Did she get as much personal attention in the teachings as the apostles did? And Peter still does. Well, that's a good question. I don't think we know really from Scripture. However, 
yeah, how are we? Well, I think I think you know Jesus included women in a way that women had never been included in, you know, before. Uh, he did not relegate them as second-class citizens, uh, but they kind of had a different role. Uh, she was obviously a follower of Jesus from early on, and uh, it seems that she was there for all of it. I mean, she was. We don't see her. In a lot of the play, and there are some things that Jesus just did with his disciples only. The Bible is clear, but I think there are also times when she and the other women are around that we're not told that they're there. Uh, but she certainly was in from the beginning. And uh, then you look and you see, hey, she was at the crucifixion when only John was there. You know, the, the only disciple who was there. Uh, she's the first one at the tomb, you know, the next day. She's the first one to see Jesus in this account we're going to now. So uh, she was certainly, um, of all the things the apostles knew, I'm assuming she knew. If it didn't come to her firsthand from being there when Jesus said it, I think she would have got it secondhand from the disciples themselves, who certainly were would talk among themselves if, again, if you've ever seen The Chosen, you know, the, Jesus is out doing his thing and the disciples are sitting around a campfire talk, talking and arguing about what he's doing. And, and she's there as part of that on that show. So I think this is, this is probably, uh, probably true for her. So, yes. Yeah. That's true. So I just think that kind of brings this whole Two things. The angel, she's crying, she's... Yeah. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And I think that's a lot of why we're seeing what is happening here, that she may not have recognized the uh, uh, angels as angels. She certainly didn't recognize Jesus as Jesus at this point. And she's crying and she's upset. And uh, But at no point, at no point up to now, when the angels ask her, or when Jesus asked asked her, at no point does she say, "You know, maybe he's risen. Maybe he is risen. Maybe he is alive." No, at no point. Every single time, her focus, her one-track mind, her her motivation is, "He's dead. His body isn't here. I've got to find him." And it's interesting because there's something about even if someone has passed away, of knowing where their body is, even in death, that is important. That somehow, even if you have someone who gets cremated and you scatter their ashes on a river or whatever, you still know what has happened to that person's dead body after they pass away. And there's something about that that just brings peace to you. And we see this, and the reason you know we can know this is true because, unfortunately, in this day and age, we have a lot of people who have missing relatives, either missing children or missing spouses or whatever. And during the time that they don't know if they're alive or dead, they have no peace about what's happened. And you see often on these shows like Dateline or 2020 or whatever that they say and during that time that they don't know what has happened to their loved one, often the, 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 they say something to the effect of, okay, maybe, 
maybe they're dead, but I just want to have their body. I just want to know where they are. I just want to be able to bury them. I just want to, you know? I mean, for example, the one that was so much in the news not so long ago was that Gabby Patino, the girl with her boyfriend or whatever, and she was missing all that time. And her family just said, okay, maybe she's maybe she is dead, but we just want her back. Yeah. Yes. The dorms that we had, there are hundreds of people wondering where somebody is. Yes. Well, and a lot of people who couldn't get hold of even if they were alive, but the you know, the the phone service was down, the electricity was down, and not the not knowing. Are they okay? Are they not okay? It's terrible. It's off. And you have no peace. And so I think one of the things motivating her here is she has no peace because she doesn't, even though she's convinced that he's dead, she has she wants his body that bad to have some peace. Joe? I think one of the things that we are leaving out of the equation here, there are different stages of grieving. And one of the big levels that goes on from my experience in what dealing with people that have passed away being at their bedside when they have passed away in dealing with family and that type of thing there is that denial that always comes into play we don't want to accept it and you can't talk any sense at that point mm -mm. and i think what's happening her with the, at the tomb is she is so overwhelmed nothing's going to make any sense to her you know, and it, it, I also look at, okay, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus talked with the disciples, but they didn't know who he was. Right. Didn't recognize him. Right. So was it a point because he hadn't really ascended into heaven at that point, because that comes later, uh -huh. uh, that she didn't recognize him? Uh, and all of the stuff that's going on with her, it, she was a basket case. Yeah, right. You know, and, and 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 that's human nature, and that's something that we have to acknowledge. And when it was all said and done, she it, and and all of a sudden it was the way Jesus responded to her that made the difference. Yeah, yeah. Is it, there's a Kubler Roth or so has the five stages of grief. Yeah. And denial is certainly you know yeah, one of the first it, ones. Yeah, and I'm a student of uh, Elizabeth Kubler Roth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interestingly, and I'll get you to that grade, hold that thought, but um, I had that per experience personally, actually. Um, we had a lovely couple at Walnut Hills who they were like the, de the chairman of the deacons and the church secretary, and they did everything in that church. And I'm sitting at home one day, and I get a call from uh, Claremont County Hospital out there in Batavia, and they said, uh, we've been called to have you come in as the pastor because of a death and i'm like I, we didn't we didn't even have anybody that was even sick at that point and i'm like who is it and it turned out to be the the husband of this couple who left house that day seemed to be perfectly fine and they were moving and he had gone back to the old house to clear, clear up some things and said goodbye to his wife and she was going to meet up there later when she goes there later you know, she can't find him, and uh, he'd passed away, had a heart attack or something in the home. So she was totally unprepared. We all were just shocked this happened. 
So I go to the hospital, and he's in. They have him in ICU because I guess they had tried to revive him, and they couldn't, and they pronounced him dead. When I got there, she was in the room, just hysterical, but his body was still there. They hadn't removed his body, and she would not allow him to be moved. She would not allow it, and you know, it was like one hour, two hours. She she just she was just in denial that he he left that day he was fine they said goodbye and now you know a couple hours later and he's gone and even though you know he was obviously gone but she wouldn't let him go and finally we had to call in the funeral home and it wasn't until the funeral director got there and actually to remove the body that she could even deal with it because she just couldn't handle it and there was no amount of you know, her, her children got there, everyone was there, the family was there, I was there. No one was taking him out of that room. And so we didn't force it because you have to allow people to deal with grief. But, you know, once the funeral home got there, then they were allowed to take the body. She was okay with that. And then, But uh, that was a firsthand experience where someone was dead and the person closest to him denied it, even though his body was right there in front of her. She just couldn't deal with it. So it can, you can get to that point. And certainly we say this is where we see Mary. So Grady, you were going to say? Um, no, I was just going to make the comment that in Jewish tradition, um, if you're not buried by a certain time, yes, not going to go, you know, it, 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 the afterlife kind of depends on it, right? They bury their dead very quickly. So I wondered if maybe that was part of the anniversary. Well, it's interesting, because look what she says there when she's talking to Jesus. She goes, tell me where you put them and what? I will get him. Okay, Mary, come on now. I will get him. Well, I mean, you know, talking about not thinking straight, right? So what was her plan, right? He has 75 pounds of aloe and spices, in addition to probably being at least 150 pounds himself. And yet she says to the gardener, just show me where he is and I'll take care of him. I'll get him. So I'm like, okay, Mary, we're just not thinking straight here, are we? Jeff, you're going to say? I was just going to say, uh, of course, she's, she's frantically looking for the lover. Yes. Okay. And I'm, I'm kind of reading and interpret this, this, um, the body has been, has been disrespected because you know, it says, she says to him, you know, where is he? I will take him away. Right. So she wants to be in, she wants to take care of the body. In the proper way. Yeah. That's kind of how I... No, because, right, once you bury a body, you're not supposed to move it, right? So, and she's thinking, we don't know who the they are that she's referring to, but probably the they she's thinking of are not Jewish people. She's probably thinking they, well, she might have been thinking the religious leaders, perhaps, but but she probably was more thinking like they being the Romans or some someone who was outside the faith, certainly someone who was not a believer in him, but someone probably even who's outside the, the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith, that, yeah, they've come. And so, yeah, they have really disrespected his body just by moving it, but certainly if they're if they're moving him without being uh, Jewish people, for sure. And so she wants him back. Number one, she wants the peace of knowing where he is. 
that he's buried, and probably also then taking care of she's always she's been taking care of him now for these past three years on the road, and she wants to take it's the same kind of the same kind of faith that moved her. The same kind of faith that says, I'll get him, is the same kind of faith that moved her to come to the tomb in the first place with the other women, knowing that there was a stone in front of her. We talked about that several times, haven't we? Why do these women come with their spices, ready to take care of Jesus' body, knowing that there's a big stone in front of the entrance and they can't move it? Well, just because they just said, we'll figure it out when we get there. And I think the same thing with this with her is just show me where his body is and I'll, and I'll take care of him. I'll figure it out when I get there. So she, she, but let's, let's deal now with, for, because you have already started kind of around the edges of it. Let's talk about this for a minute. She says she thinks he's the gardener. Well, so she didn't realize it was Jesus. So why didn't she recognize him as you? We said one is, her greed. That's, I, think, I think our resurrected body doesn't look like it did when we died. That's, and that gets back to what Joe was saying about on the road to Emmaus. There must have been something different about the way Jesus looked in his glorified body versus his human body. There was a difference. His essence and nature were the same. So you could recognize him once you got, once you heard him speak or you got to know who he was, but just to at appearances sake, he was he must have looked somewhat different. I think that's what I think maybe we'll look like we do when we're at our prettiest or our youngest. Yes, or our, you know, I don't know. I just I, I, let me just let me, let me just let me just ask you this. Are any of you gonna be disappointed when you get to heaven and you don't look like this? I ain't gonna be disappointed. I was like let me look like something else, you know? I want you to know who I am, but I don't want you to recognize me by the way I look, okay? So yeah, so maybe he looked different. Maybe it was her grief uh, that was putting her there, that she just couldn't think straight or see straight. Um, maybe it was, some commentators say, it's because of her crying that, she just, her tears, she, she couldn't see him clearly. Any other ideas? She may not even be looking up. She may be That's another point that some people say is that she just glanced at him, you know, just for a moment and didn't really look closely at him. Stan? He had been to her. Who are you seeing? Yes. Somebody said that to you. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Who are you looking for? Well, I guess you're not him. <laughs> I guess that you're asking me, you're not him. Stan, that's a good, that's a really good point. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, she didn't expect him to be alive, right? She's still not expecting him to be alive. So the fact that he's alive and talking to her says, well, this can't be him because he ain't dead. Uh, or maybe, you know, she was in the back of her mind thinking, I mean, maybe too is, why would he appear to me? Why would he appear to me? I, I'm nothing. I'm a woman. I had seven demons that he cast out. Uh, there, there, why wouldn't he appear to Peter and John when they were here? He won't, he, why would he, he wouldn't appear of all the people 
of all the gin joints in all the world, my favorite movie, Casablanca, and all the gin joints in all the world, you, you know, of all the people in all the world you could appear to, first you're appearing to me? That just doesn't make any sense. So I think there are, there are yeah, there are a lot of reasons why um, this could have this could have been. I think it's also it's it's interesting that she thinks he's the gardener because guess what? If you really get down to it, he was the gardener because he created it, right? So uh, thinking he's the gardener, in fact, he was the gardener, and and just think about that for a minute. Okay, so. God created, Jesus created, uh, God through Christ created the universe and the earth. And so he creates the Garden of Eden. Let's say famous gardens in the Bible, right? He created the Garden of Eden to be this wonderful, beautiful place. Without sin, it was the intention. Okay. Then the, the, one of his favorite places when he was here on earth was what? The Garden of Gethsemane, right? So he created the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if this place where the tomb was, if she is assuming that he's the gardener, that tells you what about this place? It, it, it needed a gardener, right? There was something about it. So, so there was, wherever this tomb was, it was a place of beauty. It was a place where you would think that a gardener was caring for it. I mean, like, when you bury a loved one, you want to have them buried in a cemetery that is, what? Well taken care of, that has a gardener. You want, when most of us go looking for places to be buried, we want a beautiful place to go. We want to be well taken care of. We want to have gardeners. So this place, wherever the tomb was, was apparently in a beautiful garden of some kind. And just think, Jesus is creating the earth. He's creating the Garden of Eden. He's creating the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's creating the garden where he knows he's going to be buried after his crucifixion in a wealthy man's tomb. Can can you imagine that maybe in creation at that moment that he made that place just a little extra special. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking too, another reason why she might not recognize him is he wasn't wearing the same clothes he usually wears. True. That's why she thought he was the gardener. He was wearing the same clothes. Yeah. Good point. Good point. And now some of you have been to the whole, I think Jim, you guys have been over there, right? Did you go to the church of the Holy Sepulcher? So that place now is basically just a church. So it's really hard to get an idea of what it might have looked like, if indeed that even is the place. There's another tomb called the uh, Garden Tomb. Did you guys go see that as well? So tell us a little bit about your your impressions of those spots, if you had any. I mean, did you think that this was like a beautiful garden area, uh, like where the Garden Tomb is especially? I think that's part of that. said it was was definitely a beautiful garden and we had to we could go and see however the church of the holy sepulcher was a yeah you don't know right you have no idea what it was back in jesus day because 
to get down to the area. I mean, you get in this and you feel like you're in some kind of a, a maze. And as I understand it, there's like six different places even within the church where this group says this is where he was, and this group says that's where he was, and even within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there's some difference of opinion. Uh, that that church was built by, was it Constantinople's mother or someone's, or Constantine's mother or something like that. But yeah, so it's hard to tell, but I think wherever it was, at that moment, it was a beautiful garden-like area. Well, the argument Green. to make for the garden tomb, though, is that it was fairly close to where right. the garden was. And, um, uh, yeah, and it was, it was something else. <laughs> the, 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 the argument against it is that it was there a long time before Jesus' death, and it may not have been, a, that tomb may not have been a new tomb, but it doesn't matter. It, it really doesn't even matter, because I don't know that we even know, or it doesn't matter. The fact is, it's just... Uh, it's just a passing through point. He wasn't. He isn't still there. Uh, he was there only for a, couple, a few days. But you know, and that's one of the reasons why I think, like for example, the Shroud of Turin and those things are not actually Jesus' body and blood and so forth, because God doesn't leave behind relics. Because why? We start to worship the relics, right? That's why. We don't have Moses' staff. We don't have Moses' body. Uh, we did have at one time the bronze serpent. Remember that? And guess what we started to do? We started to worship it. And what had to happen? God said, you got to destroy it. So God doesn't leave behind relics because he knows what our human nature does. We look for something to worship. And so that we would be worshiping the shroud. We'd be worshiping. So God doesn't leave those things behind. That's why I don't believe any of that has anything to do with Christ because God doesn't leave those kinds of things behind because he knows what we would do with them if we had them. So Stan? Just, just we aren't careful not to lose Jesus in among all the information and facts, but just for information, um, the, the, the guard, well, we're referring to the guard too. Yes. And General Gordon, the great general, was leaving the city one day and he saw, and I, I've got a picture of it somewhere, uh, the head in the stone that looked like a skull. Right, yeah. right. Uh, and there's nothing like that down at the other tomb. Right. Anyway, so there's a skull. And so he started looking for a tomb there. He found a tomb there, but it was a vessel all around it. Right. They started looking further, and they discovered a cistern, a huge cistern right outside of the tomb down below, which clearly could have... Used to right. To so ir- irrigate the garden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now they have a garden there again, but now it's just so, uh, so. Uh, yeah, it's a tourist area now. Yeah, yeah. Mm, right. Right, right, right. But it, but you know this place is called the place of the skull, where the crucifixion took place. Golgotha, the place of the skull. So that does lead some credence to that. So. Okay, we're out of time, I guess, for today. We'll come back and finish this off next week. And then uh, if we have time, we probably will. We'll finish this off and then we'll head on to the road to Emmaus, which is one of my favorite, favorite passages of all. I love the road to Emmaus. Yes, Ruth, go. What I've been with us, well, I wasn't saying that Jesus was dead. I thought that it was real or not, or the original one, or something like that. What impressed me was all the people 
that were there from all over the world. Mm -hmm. Just absorbing, you know, like, you know, like that they they would be weeping Jesus and and they were all speaking different languages. And the same thing happened at the Jordan River. There were a bunch of African people being baptized and, and they were joyously singing in a club. And but just being there with Christians all over the world. I agree a hundred percent. I think when you can be in a group of worshipers from all different nationalities and all different languages, there's something that happens that's just uh, just just something that happens that is different. Uh, and but and you think, well, that's what's going to be like in heaven, right? That's that's we're going to have all different languages, all different nations. We're all there worshiping the Lord and praising Him. And so, as good as it feels in a place like this, we're all kind of the same. In a place like that, where we're all different, but we all are still brothers and sisters in Christ. That's going to be amazing, amazing. So, oh, there's a show on called Kim's Convenience on Netflix. If you ever get a chance to watch it, it's hilarious. And one of the main characters on there says, Amazing. So. Okay, that's all I have. That concludes this episode of Where's God? Finding Him in the Small Stuff Bible Study. I pray that you've learned something new about the Lord today, and He's given you some new insight into who He is and how much He loves you. Remember, the eternal God is our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. May in that refuge today and those everlasting arms, you find the provision that you need, the protection that you need, the power that you need, and through those, the peace that you need. Remember, he said, my peace I give you. Peace be with you. Shalom.